one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Anoush, and for this special episode of the New Statesman podcast, I'm joined by the writer Gary Young, artist Jeremy Della, and the New Statesman editor-in-chief Jason Cowley to discuss British national identity, coinciding with a special issue guest edited by the actor Michael Sheen. This special issue, A Dream of Britain, is on newsstands now and explores issues of class, culture and our sense of national identity in Britain. I'm joined by three people who've contributed to the magazine. Gary Young is a professor of sociology at Manchester University, former Guardian columnist and the author of five books about British and American identity. Jeremy Deller is an artist best known for work exploring ideas around British history, identity and pop culture. He won the Turner Prize in 2004 and during the 2017 general election campaign, he created a poster bearing the words, strong and stable my arse, referring to Theresa May's election slogan, copies of which were seen in windows across the country. And Jason Cowley is editor-in-chief of The New Statesman, whose latest book, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England, is out this week. Thanks all for joining me. First of all, I want to go around and ask each of you, what is the first thing you think of when you try and put your finger on British identity? And is there even a British identity? So, Jeremy, you're sitting next to me. Why don't you go first? Very boringly, I'm going to say maybe the landscape. Yes, and you've designed this beautiful cover for this special issue, and it's a sort of psychedelic, very colourful image of Britain. And you actually say that each person experiences it differently from you because you're slightly colourblind, and you say that national identity should be like that as well. I think your relationship to your country should be as personal almost as your relationship to your parents, in a way. And your country is a bit like your parents because it always lets you down, but also you, you still have a, some sort of love for it regardless. And so for me, it's a very personal thing, your relationship to your country. And so this issue, this cover, I wanted to be very colourful. I wanted to be the map, but shifting in a state of flux. Because I think national identity changes constantly and should change. And when it doesn't change, I think that's when countries have problems. Thank you. And Gary, in the issue, you write about the American dream and France's Republican ideals as these sort of aspirational narratives that give those nations a sense of trajectory. And this idea of this whole issue is in search of a British dream, like the American dream. And Xi Jinping has spoken since 2012 about a Chinese dream. But you say that Britain doesn't really have anything similar, even though we are this land of storytellers. What does it fall back on to fill that void? And is there a sense of British identity that fills that void? I think it falls back quite hard on the past. But its sense of the past is so partial and distorted that it it falls in a way that makes it very hard to get up again. My relationship to Britishness is kind of 
is quite complicated because growing up black in Britain in the early 70s, people would tell me that I wasn't from here. And my mother, in her own way, would say, well, you're Barbadian. If you're bad at cricket, you can play for England, is what she used to say, but you play for the West Indies. And so I actually grew up, I didn't call myself British until I was 17. And it was only a, a kind of a, an attempt to really make sense of myself. And that gave me an ambivalence to place. So when I lived in America for 12 years, when I was in America, I didn't really miss Britain. Now I'm back. I don't miss America. But what I do miss is people. And to me, <laughs> one of the problems with putting your finger on it, British identities is because it's so amorphous and wobbly that you try and put your finger on it and it kind of shifts. But the, the things that I've learned to love, the drinking culture, the sense of humor, there is a kind of a bacchanal element to British culture. When do the pubs open? That I find quite endearing and that it's only partly about alcohol, really. It's also just about let's, <laughs> let's go to the whatever. And a sense of humor and a self-deprecation. You know, when you live in America for a long time, nobody in America says he's not exactly bright. <laughs> so we have this way. But also, Britishness means to me a violence and an aggression, a kind of, you know, we're British and, you know, nothing else and nothing less. And so there is also an element of Britishness in a way that it's framed that I find quite scary. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Jason, just coming on from that, in your column in the issue, you draw that distinction between Englishness and Britishness. So what does British identity mean to you in the context of all of your writing about England in particular? Yeah, Jeremy chose landscape and, and Gary spoke about the weight of history. I mean, Britishness is a contested identity and the British state itself is fragmented and under pressure from Scottish nationalism and English nationalism increasingly. When I think of Britishness, modern Britishness, and I'm aware of what Gary says about the weight of the past and the pressure of the past, I like to think of an umbrella under which many of us can shelter. And one of the things I, I like about modern British identity is that many of us have hyphenated or compound identities. It's plural, inclusive. It's not a racial identity. And we can shelter, many of us can shelter under that umbrella by definition, it's a multinational state. It's not one country or one nation. In the piece in the magazine, I go back to my childhood in Harlow. And Gary, I, I grew up in a new town. Gary was in Stevenage. I was in Harlow, new town. My parents had come out of the East End in the 50s after they got married, came to Harlow in search of new opportunities. And in our little cul-de-sac were three Sicilian families who had moved from rural Sicily from quite a poor background and they set up a little commercial nursery, agricultural nursery in the Lee Valley. And two brothers had married two sisters, and they lived next door to each other. And the, a younger brother of the two sisters lived just across the road. So on one side, I had two Sicilian families, and on the other, another Sicilian family. And their children were my close friends, and we grew up together. And what I learned from them quite early on, and I write about this in the magazine, is that they felt quite uncomfortable about Englishness and calling themselves English. You know, they supported the Italian national football team. They spoke an Italian dialect at home. You know, they'd never lived in Italy, but there was a culture that ran through them and they believe represented who they are. So I, I absolutely understand and relate to what Gary says about Barbados and what his mother said. 
And I used to get one of my friends in particular, Salvatore, who's sadly now dead, but a, a great guy. I used to try and say, look, Sav, you're English. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Italian, I'm Sicilian, and I'm British, not English, never English. And that bothered me at the time because I didn't quite understand what he meant. Later on, I, I, I encountered similar attitudes in London when I started to, first of all, go to university and then in London for my black friends, who similarly had a, what they called a black British identity. But Englishness was problematic. It was even more contested than Britishness. It, for somehow it was associated with colonialism, the empire, whiteness, and the racism they'd experienced as young people growing up in the England of the 1970s into the 80s. So, Anoush, because of my friendship with the Sicilian boys, I, I got a sense of something in play here. And because I loved football, I used to say to my father, why don't we have a British football team? You've got all these brilliant Scottish players playing for Liverpool and Manchester United and very good Irish players as well, Northern Irish players in particular. So why haven't we got a British team? And he'd try and explain to me why we didn't. So it took me a long time to um, understand the complexities of the multinational British state. And even today, I'm still trying to grapple with those complexities through the New Statesman's pages and then in the pages of my new book, which is more about Englishness as Britain fragments. I'm particularly interested in what is England and who are the English today. So interesting. Thanks, Jason. And Jeremy, is there anything that you recognise in, in what they've said about that perhaps problematic side of calling oneself English? Yes, I think England... The English, there's this, this capacity for random violence in the UK, but it's probably more to do with, I feel more to do with England, where you could go out and you could be attacked. We feel like you might be attacked. There's a sort of threat in the evenings. I know the drinking culture that Gary so much loves is obviously a wonderful thing in Britain, but there is also this almost underlying threat, I find, even myself, just growing up that something could happen to me. And there'd be no reason for it whatsoever, but it would happen. And I don't feel that if I go to Germany or France or anywhere. But in England especially, I feel it's always there. Yeah, when writing about gun violence in America, I always used to say that I feel much more likely to be beaten up in England. I just feel much more likely to be killed in America. Although I would say that does bleed into Scotland. Also has that, I think, um, in areas. But there is something on the edge particularly with Englishness. And I think here, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy when, when England reached the final of the Euros, there was a guy, and it took a while for people to realise it was the same guy. He stuck a firework up his mm. butt in Leicester Square. He took cocaine. He managed to fight his way into the game. And there was something about him that I really loved. <laughs> and I thought he was, I, I did, I thought there was, and he, he was interviewed and he said, I'd do it all again tomorrow. I had a great day. And there was something about him that I found instantly recognizable, quite engaging, also quite terrifying. <laughs> and that kind of, I'm not sure how that would go if I met him on a Saturday night. Especially with his mates. Well, exactly. But there is something joyful and if scary, and I thought quintessentially English, actually. I don't think you would find as, um, I mean, you'll find one or two, but it's the kind of thing that I would associate with England much more than any of, of UK's kind of constituent parts. Mm. 
And there are all sorts of reasons why I shouldn't like that guy, but I do. It's, he's like an embodiment of a Hogarth painting in a way. Yeah. You know, the whole cycle of a rake's progress or something. He's doing the he's whole doing thing in one night. <laughs> Um, That's deep in the culture, though. As Jeremy said, you go back to the taverns of Falstaff and, and, and Shakespeare, the, the rowdiness and the bawdiness. And you know, England has repeatedly been fighting wars through, through the centuries, obviously with France, but also within the islands of, of the United Kingdom as well. I recognise those archetypes, Gary, you talk about. And certainly growing up in Harlow, as I did in the 70s into the 80s, it was, it was a rough town. It had a social democratic ethos, which I admire even more so in retrospect, but it was a tough place. And um, you'll recall, we're a similar age, you know, the, the connection between kind of football violence in, in that period and, and mainstream culture. And particularly the England football team back then, it had a very unpleasant far-right faction attached to it. And, you know, that's taken years to, to move away from and, re and reclaim. That faction had grown up and I saw them a lot. Of, I spent a lot of 2019 in Parliament Square. I went down there to talk to people who were very unhappy, who were pro-Brexit but very unhappy. And a lot of those people probably were football fans. There are men in their 40s and 50s who are now getting into politics. And it was fascinating talking to them about Britain, about England, really because they like they didn't really know who they were and they of course would talk about the past a lot and for them their future was really the past and it was fascinating because you'd always get onto world war 2 after about 30 seconds and inevitably about what it was better in my parents day not just after the war and so on but yeah i think every town in britain is dangerous and maybe it's because we are a warlike nation or we have been for so many for so long and it's relatively peaceful but there is something about that kind of teetering the kind of, whether it's the joy or the decency, but teetering on the brink of something far darker. You know, when I alluded to the, at the beginning of my piece, the kind of the nervousness of African-American soldiers coming to Britain during the war, and uh, the fact that Britain's absolutely adamant that it wouldn't have, it wouldn't implement color bars in Britain, and this kind of, because that's, you know, there was this very serious sense of that's not who we are, even while Britain was doing that all over the rest of the world. And so that sense of rectitude, of, of let's call it decency for now, but that's the glove. And then inside that glove, there is a fist. And, you know, you never know which one you're going to get. <laughs> and sometimes you get them both at the same time. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What Jeremy was saying about speaking to those sort of Brexiteer protesters always bringing up the past, it reminded me something of in your piece, Gary. Uh, we write about nationalism in Britain, speaking to the present only in passing and obsessed with the past that it completely eschews the future. Why did you describe it that way? I think there's a, a really big thing that we don't talk about, which is empire. It's really impossible to understand Britain without empire. I mean, it's really... You know, how would we have got on the Security Council? What put the great in Great Britain? And the quite rapid managed decline of its fortunes. And so that sense which Tony Blair in his interview referred to, the kind of that notion of our best days are behind us, which I would argue, well, they weren't our best days, actually. They were among our most violent, but they were the days in which Britain was most powerful. And it has yet to create a story for itself going forward. So then you're left with what we had rather than what we might be. And I do think that in the absence of a foundation story, which you can't invent, but the French Revolution, American Revolution, or an occupation, a, a war defeat, something that forces a reset, we've never had to sit down and actually write down, well, who do we want to be? What are these values? And Which is why it's so difficult to put your finger on it, because it descends into uh, a kind of a, a notion which is very partial. I think the closest we got was in 45 and in the brief period after, which was when places like Stevenage and Harlow were created, when the NHS was created, when Windrush came, and there was this sense of, okay, we're going to be this. We're going to be a place that looks after people and that has some kind of norms. And that, and I, I think that's the closest we've got to having a kind of forward-looking notion of who, who we want to be. That was more than just notion-based. Mm, and you tell that story, don't you, Jason, through your Aunt Connie in your book, who moved to Harlow in the post-war years, and she sort of embodied, you write, the never-again hope and idealism of the sort of Labour Newtown era after the war. And her journey, obviously, you know, was one through austerity in recent years, as we've covered in, in the magazine. Yes, she's the family matriarch. She's 93. And she's the only member of our family still living in Harlow, actually. She lives in the same end of Terrace House she's lived in for more than, more than 50 years. She always believed in the founding mission of the Newtown. And our family has scattered far and wide, mostly around Essex and one of her sisters, who's 90, represents the kind of Thatcherite Essex. That, that side of the family has a kind of different approach and, and worldview. But Connie stayed on in the town. And we looked at her in the NS a few years ago, Anoush, when she lived in a, what was once a former village called Potter Street around which the new town was built. So it was subsumed by the new town. And 
the doctor's surgery was at a place called Prentice Place. And actually, I was born directly opposite the doctor's surgery above a bakery in Prentice Place. And I remember looking out from the window at the, at the doctor's surgery. Opened in 1955. I was born in the late 60s. But in 2018, my aunt received a letter saying that the surgery would be arbitrarily closed without any consultation, no consultation with the town council, with the local MP, Robert Halfon. It was a fait accompli. And she launched a campaign to try and save it. At that point, she was not 89. It, it gathered some momentum and she got some national attention. She was interviewed by the papers and on the BBC, but it was closed all the same. They didn't listen to her. But the consequence was she had to take four buses to get to um, the nearest doctor's surgery at the age of 90. I mean, it was, it was disgraceful. And she said it had broken her heart because she'd always believed in the Newtown ideal and what it represented and that ethos that Gary speaks about after the war of that, that, that sense of collective help. You come out of this great trauma that was the World War determined to build the new Jerusalem, as Clement Attlee called it, the new society. And what we discovered was that the local's doctor surgery, the ultimate owners were a conglomerate in the USA. It was owned in America by a, by a huge private health company. And they were able to close an NHS surgery because it was no longer cost effective. So for me, and in many ways, that was the beginning of the book. It symbolized something about what Orwell called the social atmosphere in the country. And I began to think about the period from 97, really, when Blair was elected, right through to Brexit and the Brexit wars and the polarization that followed it, and then into the pandemic, where we did see a kind of collective coming together in response to that great trauma. And then the book ends just as we come out of the pandemic. But looking back to that period when Blair comes to power in 97, in 95, he gave a notable speech saying, I want this to be a young country. Blair didn't like the associations with the past that Gary and, and Jeremy have referred to. He wanted us to be free from it, to escape from it, to reinvent England and Britain as something new and modern and progressive and dynamic and open because Blair rushed towards the new globalization. And I want us to be a young country, is what he said. And then he went on to say, we will be a young country. I mean, how can you speak of Britain and England as young? I mean, England with Denmark is probably, the, they're the, probably the oldest nation states in Europe. There was a recognisable English identity before the Norman Conquest. But Blair wanted us to be a young country. And what I think happened over those decades, culminating in the Brexit vote, was that there were a lot of people who were left behind who were forgotten, who were shut out from the new market-driven globalization. And you know they were given an opportunity to express their discontent, I think, in the Brexit referendum. And I'm talking of people in Harlow, 68% of Harlow voted for Brexit, in the small towns, in the shires. So there are different Englands, Gary. There's a, I think there are multiple Englands. And England sits within uneasily within the larger British state. So much of what you're saying I agree with, but these are some of the complexities that I was trying to tease out, Anoush, in, in the book, looking at stories, because the stories we tell, I think, tell us who we are. I'm not attempting to answer that question, and I know Gary's posed it before, who are we? It's not a question that can be decisively answered, but I, I, I just wanted to try and explore certain themes as I try to understand who we are today, after Brexit, after the pandemic, as the British state is fragmenting, you know, who are the English, who are the Scottish, and what do we want? I made a film a few years ago, and it's set in a classroom, 
is me talking to a group of 17-year-olds, a nice diverse group of people you could think of, talking to them with their backgrounds are and their families. And at one point I asked these young people, do you feel English? No one felt English. Do you feel British? Not really. And then one of the young people said, I feel I'm a Londoner. That's what I feel like. And that's my identity. It's not really to do with the country. And as soon as they leave London, they're quite fearful. I asked them if they've been to the countryside and one young woman said, yes, I have. I've been to Oxford. And people looked at me strangely. <laughs> and uh, it made me very sad, actually, <laughs> to hear that. But there is that as well to consider. This London is a power, mm. perhaps a centre of power, but also culturally and ethnically so different, maybe. Yeah, That's definitely true. And I also think it can be translated in different ways which is which is why when i talk about kind of britain being multicultural i'm like well we don't have to bother with forget race and religion for a moment just think manchester newcastle london and bristol like they are very different cultures and they're all recognizably united you wouldn't i don't think meet a bristolian a mancunian a geordie or a londoner and think oh maybe you're french do you know what I mean? You would have a sense of what kind of brought them together, but but they're still quite different. And to the extent that we just travel between Englishness and Britishness, I, I studied in Edinburgh. And when I went to Edinburgh when I was 18, that was when I realised I was English. I didn't know I was English. Because you were told. Yeah, in no uncertain <laughs> terms. Yeah. And, also, and also it was really clear that they, the Scottish, were different and the distinction made sense. But that I think is particularly true, as is always case for the dominant culture, right? That white people don't think of themselves as white. Nobody's ever asked me, when did you come out as straight? Nobody's ever asked me, how did you balance being a foreign correspondent with childcare? Because I'm a man. And because I was English and England was dominant, I didn't have to think about my Englishness at all. It hadn't even occurred to me until I went somewhere else. And to some extent, I often still find myself fighting this in my writing of eliding Britishness and Englishness almost casually and in a neglectful manner in a way that I wouldn't have done after a couple of years in Scotland. Well, I think that the other elements, those elements of the British state have a clearer sense of their identity than the English do. England feels like where the other more definite places stop. Because there's an attempt to define themselves against Englishness, isn't there? And, and the power of London and, 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 mm. and, and, and Westminster. Whereas the English, when they came to define themselves against something, it turned out to be the European bureaucracy. It was the EU. And Scotland and Wales, David Reynolds' Cambridge historian calls, calls the UK a mini English empire. And there's, there's something in that. But as Scottish nationalism in particular grows and becomes more confident, and more assertive, certainly since the creation of the Scottish Parliament, I think it's forcing upon the English a reconsideration of who they are, which is why I think we've seen a sense of English self-consciousness rising in, in recent decades. Absolutely. And in Michael Sheen's piece for this issue, he writes about how 
when we talk as a country about Britain, we are often talking specifically about England. And yeah. he makes the point that we can be disregarding the Welsh and, and the Scots in, in that kind of dominant narrative that you described, Gary. Now we're coming to the end. Michael's Welsh, isn't he? Yes, English? he is Welsh. Michael's yes. Welsh. He, he speaks, he speaks as, a, as a Welshman. He does. And we're coming to the end of our discussion. And of course, the theme of this issue is the British dream. And I was just wondering while you were all talking here, is it extremely British that we don't have those utopian ideals of a British dream. I, you know, can I just, I think we have characters who had that rather than maybe the dream itself. We have, we do, there are people in the culture from the past mainly who have been great dreamers and thinkers in that way. Mm. So that, my cover was influenced by William Blake, for example, mm. and everyone seems to think of William Blake as the, the great dreamer in a sense for Britain. It's, it's interesting that the last image in the Stonehenge exhibition at the British Museum is actually a suite of William Blake prints, the Albion prints. Mm. So I think there's people, I think like the Beatles were dreamers in a way. And I always thought the Beatles gave us an opportunity to redefine ourselves. We didn't really take it. Maybe they split up too early, but that was another moment I felt after post-1945. That could be a vision of Britain through these four people. So I think we have individuals, we have artists maybe and musicians that do that. Jason and Gary, do you want to come in on that last point? I think Gary referred to the war and the, the post-45 settlement, but I think we defined our Britishness against a sense of external threat. It was existential. And inevitably, when something is threatened, you get a greater sense of what, what it means and why it's valuable. And I do still think the British identity is valuable and is meaningful because it is today, at least, ultimately inclusive. And Britain now is also uh, an island of, of migrants and, and great that it is. And all of these people have come together um, from different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures and religions. And what unifies them, I think, and I hope, is a sense of greater Britishness. And I think that's something to cherish and hold on to. And that's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a dream in the way that the American dream. And Gary picks apart the American dream in his essay in the New Statesman this week. And the the dark shadow of the American dream. Similarly, the Republican idea in France, you just have to go to the suburbs in the big cities of France to find out how many people are excluded from the, the French um, Republican ideal. But in, there's something understated about Britishness and something valuable, I think, and something still worthy of, of celebrating and defending. Yes, Gary, because you write about the sort of limiting yeah. and damaging ways that these ideals can be. So is it one of Britain's strengths that we perhaps don't strive towards that kind of narrative? I think it could be a strength or a weakness, but what we lack is a shared collective sense of purpose. And that could be a dream, it could be a value, it could be a notion, and that's, to me, that's the problem. But every now and then, I see it. I see not a dream, but a constellation of, I think, the opening ceremony to the Olympics... I think of Vindaloo <laughs> and sort of marching down kind of the East End and it's, you know, me, my mum, my dad and my gran are off to Waterloo. <laughs> and there's, a, there's this kind of, there's this sense of, can I introduce you please to a lump of cheddar cheese? It's silly and it's, and it's rousing and, that, and there is a playfulness. There are a lot of things that Britain does well and that kind of that to see it, you would know it wasn't American or Danish or French or that it was British. So what there, what definitely does exist is a British character. And, and I would just say one other thing is that I think that 
what's both exciting and a bit scary about British identity is that in the absence of that formal dream or value or whatever, it's constantly in play, including the inclusivity that Jason refers to. It's in play. And so that gives us everything to fight for and everything to lose. And once you start writing things down and setting things out, the capacity for flux, for imagination, for gaps where you can put things, it falls away. So we are the country of Stormzy and the Windrush scandal. We are both, Mm. and that is possible. Actually, it's vital to understand us as both in order to get a sense of who we are and who we might be. Anoush, I should ask you a question. I know you're the chair, but what about your own sense of Britishness with your Armenian heritage? Well, when Jeremy mentioned what that woman in the sixth form that you went to speak to said about being a Londoner, that's what I used to say when I was younger, because I grew up in London. I'd say I'm a Londoner. When I was less in tune, perhaps, with my Armenian identity, which I've I've become more sort of interested in as I've grown older and, you know, lost a parent and perhaps become a bit more grateful for having been forced to learn the language (laughs) and uh, be embedded in the culture. So now I would call myself British Armenian, although there's no sort of bit on the form on the drop down form for that <laughs> <laughs> but you've written very well on 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 the personal and the political when exploring your background and i, I as you're a great admirer of what you've written thank you very much jason i've loved being part of this issue because it's really made me think about exactly what you asked me so jeremy gary and jason thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time to discuss all of these themes thank you thank you so much You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian. You can read all the articles today on newstatesman.com or pick up a copy of the magazine with Jeremy's beautiful cover. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. Our producers are Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson and the music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Listener.